Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode. Now, if you, you know, have a look at the title, <laughs> you know that this podcast is all about Formula One racing, which is a car race. It's an auto sport race. And I just want to say, if that doesn't sound like your thing, just don't knock it till you try it, because I think I would have been probably the last person like I would have predicted that I would be the last person to get into Formula One but it is like a new obsession for me now to be fair I'll explain all this but I got into it because of a tv show so I haven't actually watched a race live but I have been tracking them on my phone for this season you know getting updates on each race and stuff and now we're getting to the point in the season where they're all going to start happening at times where I can actually watch like 7am our time. So I'm excited to actually watch a live race because it's the first year I've gotten into it. But anyway, give it a shot and listen to the episode and watch Drive to Survive on Netflix because I almost guarantee if you watch like the whole first season, I think you'll get into it. I don't know. It's an amazing show. So I'll talk about more about how I got into it and all that stuff. But Thank you for tuning into the episode. Give it a shot if you don't think it's your thing. And I hope you enjoy and learn a lot about Formula One. As I get into it here, I should mention that this is going to be a two-parter, I believe, because there's just a lot to get into with F1 and F1 driving. So basically this week, I'm going to talk about like how I kind of discovered Formula One, what it is, and how each like season and team are structured, because there's a lot of these rules that you kind of have to have a foundation laid for to really understand kind of what's going on. And then next week we'll talk about like the history, current teams, you know, my thoughts on each driver because I have many (laughs) thoughts now. I'm very invested in the drivers and then, you know, controversies and stuff like that because there's these new rules that get implemented each year and, you know, teams will break the rules and they'll get penalties and the drivers are, you know, these big personalities a lot of times. And so there's a lot of like current thoughts I want to share on Formula One and that will be next week. But for this week, I just want to lay the groundwork of what Formula One is, how a season is structured, how each race is structured, and kind of the steps of a race weekend, what it all entails, all that kind of thing. Because I watched this show, Drive to Survive on Netflix. It's a great show, all about Formula One. And you kind of piece together these different rules and stuff, and it does an okay job of explaining it, but there's some rules that really get a little bit lost in translation or you have to look up on your own. And so I wanted to just give a general guide for how Formula One works. So let's talk a little bit about how I kind of got into it. I've mentioned Drive to Survive multiple times, but basically it started actually with a golf documentary, and I forget what it's called, like... I think it's called Full Swing on Netflix. And it's about these golfers on the PGA Tour. 
And it so happened that it was being filmed right when the LIV uh, League or the Saudi Arabian like tour was getting uh, formed. And there was all the controversy about which golfers were going to go to which league and who was going to stay at PGA, all of that. So I got hooked into that documentary, even though it was golf, which I don't find overly exciting. But I had heard so many things about how great of a show it was in docu-series. And I love a good docu-series. So I decided to watch, and it was amazing. And then, so two things kind of happened simultaneously. First of all, I listened to Armchair Expert a lot of times. And Dak Shepard is always talking about Formula One. And I've never known what he's talking about because he's he talks about these drivers that... um you know, what happened that week, that race weekend, who won at one point, he had like the Red Bull car in his driveway, all this stuff related to Formula One that I would just listen to and have it go over my head and be like, oh, well, I don't know what he's talking about really. So I just won't pay attention to that part really. But it kind of, you know, I took, took some mental notes as to what he was saying about the drivers and stuff, but I, I didn't really know what was going on. Then I watched this, you know, full swing show and then I heard that this show Drive to Survive about Formula One was done by the same people as Full Swing and I love that documentary and I didn't get excited by golf but then I got obsessed with like all the um all the players in this golf documentary that I was like well if they can make golf exciting they can probably make auto racing exciting except you know I'm definitely not going to get into it, but maybe it'll be a good show. That was my attitude going in. And then it's five seasons as of right now. They have five seasons up. So it goes from like, I think the 2017 season to the 2022 season. And it documents like all the drivers, what teams they're on, kind of outlines the rules, all of this. And honestly, for the whole first, like, basically whole first season, I was just so amazed at the pit stops they would show because the pit stops literally take only a couple seconds, especially once, I mean, once they drive into their like pit crew, the tire change is about one second. It's crazy. Like it takes a couple seconds to drive in and a couple seconds to drive out of the pit stop lane. But the tire change is incredible to watch. It is amazing. And just that kept me <laughs> captivated for like a full season. So anyway, we watched the first season, we were obsessed, and then we very, very quickly watched the next four seasons. So we're all caught up now. And now we have to actually kind of make the transition to live racing because, um, you know, there's, n- there's no more Drive to Survive to watch until it comes out next year. So it's always a little bit behind for the editing and stuff like that. So that is how I really got into Formula One. I'm telling you, the way that the show frames it all and makes it look just, it really grabs your attention. And you really get invested in some of these drivers and some of these teams and stuff like that. So anyway, I would highly recommend the show, you know, even if you think that it might not be the thing you like, because it is just, it's just fascinating. Like you hear about these things or these sports that you have no idea about. 
And then realize it's like this whole other world. Like, I didn't even know Formula One was a thing last year. And then I, you know, read up on it, listen to it more. I realize it's like this huge international thing. So many people are into it. So many people watch. It's this huge just entity. And they travel all around. Again, so many people are really diehard fans for their certain teams. And it's just this whole world that I didn't know existed. And that's just always fascinating to me. So anyway, let's get into what Formula One actually is. So I just looked up basic definition of what is Formula One. And this says Formula One, also called F1 in short, is an international auto racing sport. F1 is the highest level of single seat, open wheel and open cockpit professional motor racing contest. Uh, It also says Formula One racing is governed and sanctioned by a world body called the FIA, which stands for Federación Internacional del Automobile, or the International Automobile Federation. The name Formula comes from the set of rules that the participating drivers and cars must follow. So, we need to go over the general, like, basics, basically, of Formula One, how it's structured, what happens in a season, who are these teams, all of that sort of thing. So here's a general overview, at least for the 2023 season. Now, the rules can change and vary a little bit from season to season, but here are the rules for 2023. Technically, there can be 13 teams, according to the 2023 rules, but there are only 10 this season. And there have only been 10 in all five of the F1 seasons that I've watched. There's always 20, or there's always 10 teams that are competing against each other. Now, each team has two drivers, which means there are 20 drivers and 20 cars out on the track competing at any given time. So it's a very, very small pool of drivers. And what you start realizing as you watch the show is, you know, these teams are trying to get the best drivers in their cars. And so, you know, like, let's say someone is moving from one team to the other because their contract is up and they think this other team will be better. Well, it causes like this huge cascade of driver changes because there's only so many F1 drivers at this top tier level because there's only 20 spots to be a driver. Like it is the most competitive thing. There's only 20 F1 drivers in the world. So these spots are very, very competitive. They are heavily vied for They are getting paid so much money to drive these cars. And when there's kind of a driver shuffle, like one team kind of poaches another driver from another team, then, you know, that team who just got poached from will try to poach another driver from a different team. And there ends up being these crazy, dramatic, like, intricacies um, within the drivers and team dynamics of Formula One. And I was thinking about this a little bit, which was kind of interesting because... So I used to be a big watcher of, like, reality TV. I used to watch the Kardashians a lot and... Well, I wouldn't say a big watcher of reality TV, but I used to watch, like, the Kardashians, basically, and a few other reality shows. But what I I think I like this so much, 
first of all, I gave up watching reality TV, really. It's kind of a waste of time. I didn't like all the drama because it just seemed, you know, staged or fake or just negative. Like, I didn't need to be filling my mind with this. Okay, this gives me, like, <laughs> tracking the, the drama of, like, drivers going to different teams and what they're paying each one and who poached who or whatever. I think it gives me my fill of what I was getting in reality TV, but it's not like a destructive thing. It's not this negative um, aspect. It's just, you know, but, but it's kind of the equivalent of reality shows, honestly. So I think that's why I like this show too, is all of the interpersonal, inner team tracking and stuff like that and who's going where and all, all of that. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but yes, so there's 10 teams, two drivers per team. So there's 20 people competing. Um, maybe there might be two other teams formed. I heard rumors that there might be two extra teams, uh, for next year. So there could be up to 24, um, drivers on the track at once. But as of right now, there are 20. Now, every year, the team, each team builds their own car. So they have a budget and we'll talk about that a little bit in the second part in like next, next week's episode, because there's been some controversy surrounding this. So each team has a budget, but the budget can vary wildly by team. So you'll notice that some of these teams that keep winning like year after year, you know, because they keep winning, they keep getting better places and stuff. They keep getting more money in their budget. Their budget keeps expanding. So they keep getting to build better cars with their bigger budgets. So especially in like 20, you know, eight or I guess 2017 to, I think I'll have to look up when the budget cap actually went into effect. But for a few years there where I was watching and, um, you know, they were recapping the, the seasons on drive to survive. There was no budget cap for the cars. So each year, each car builds their, or each team builds their car and they have a whole team of engineers that try to optimize the car, the aerodynamics. They have a wind tunnel that they test in. And obviously if you have more money, you are going to be able to take, I guess not scrimp and save when you're trying to make this amazing car, you can spend a lot more money on like the nicer, um, engines or the nicer chassis design and, you know, it's just more expensive in general to get a faster car. So some of these teams that were winning had just astronomical budgets, like hundreds of millions of dollars. And the smaller teams would be on kind of a shoestring budget. And so the lower budget teams kind of end up with slower cars, which attracts the not as great drivers. And so it's kind of this snowball effect of this huge in like un unfair comparison between a team who has like five times the budget of another team. Obviously the one with five times the budget is probably gonna win because they can pay the better driver, they can pay for more engineers, they can get better wind tunnels, you know, things like that. So, but the last um I think it's either I think it's a year or two at least, the FIA actually put a spending cap on the car development. Now, it excludes some things like driver pay, and I believe it excludes engine pay, too. It's like, 
it, it's only a budget cap, I think, on things like the chassis design. So, like, engineers, salaries sort of thing, or how many you can have, your team, um, in developing the actual car design. So, it was an effort to make it a little bit more fair. And we're going to, again, talk about the spending caps more in in depth in some of the controversies because there were problems where some teams broke that or one team in particular broke the spending rules and stuff like that. So anyway, every year each team sets out and builds their car. They have like a couple days to test it in the beginning of the year on the track and they showed some of that in Drive to Survive where you know, a lot of times they're testing on wind tunnels, but then the teams will actually be able to go out on the track all like the same day and test out their car and work out any of the kinks in the car. And it's kind of interesting how they all do it because it all seems like it's so rough at first. And it seems like they pretty significantly change their design from year to year a lot of times. So the drivers are experiencing this car for the first time. They're talking about like, okay, this suspension's not good. I'm bouncing too much. This is, you know, and, and they'll make tweaks with their engineering team um, at the beginning of the year. Then from there, once those practice days are done and once they have a car that is, they think is good, then the races start. Obviously it's scheduled. I kind of made it sound like they just can take their time practicing. And then once they're fine, the races start. They're obviously scheduled on certain days and you get only a certain time to develop your car and all that kind of thing. But um, there are 23 races in the 2020, 2023 season around the world. So they take place in a bunch of different places. Monaco is a big one. This year they have one in Las Vegas. Uh, they have one in Miami. But a lot of them are international. Uh, like international. There's one in Austria. And uh, I think I have a list of the different races here, but, um, there's 23 races and there is a scoring system for each race. It's uniform across all the races, but pretty much, um, there's some nuances, which we'll go over, but basically the, out of the 20 drivers, the top 10 will score points. So it's a kind of descending number of points as you go from first place to 10th place. So first place gets 25 points, then second place gets 18, third place gets 15, fourth gets 12, fifth gets 10 points, sixth place gets eight points, seventh place gets six, eighth place gets four, ninth place gets two, and 10th place gets one point. So you definitely wanna be in the points, which means you have to be in the top half of the field. Now, you also get an extra point if you get the fastest lap. So, um, some people will have, like, some teams and drivers will have strategy where they'll tr basically aim for the, the fastest lap to get that extra point, and it could be at, you know, at the expense of other... There's a lot of strategy that goes into getting the fastest lap versus, like, what place you're going to um, score. So, and that's kind of interesting. Now, if a race ends before 75% of the race is complete, only half of the points are awarded. And then if less than two laps are completed, then no points are awarded. This would mostly be like, I believe a weather issue or some sort of crazy crash. But I, I think it would mostly just be 
um, a weather issue where they couldn't race would end the race early like that. Now, there are three sprint races, at least in the 2023 season. This could vary from year to year. But there's an extra race that is one-third of the distance on the regular track. So they're not doing a full other race, which is why it's called a sprint race. It's one-third of the distance. This was added to the season in 2021 as like an exciting extra thing. And we'll go over the the whole race weekend, but basically it happens between the qualifying race and the main race of the race weekend, which again, we'll go over what that all means. But the winner of that sprint race starts in first place during the main race. So it, it does have a big impact on possibly the points that your team is going to score um, during that race weekend because you get this better position starting in the main race, which is worth many points. So for the sprint races, only the first eight cars are awarded points and the point system just goes down by one. So like first place gets eight points, second gets seven, third gets six points. Uh, so it just goes eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one for the top eight places in the race. Now, for any of these races, points can be taken away for penalties and anything kind of illegal that you do um, in the race, but that's rare. Most of the penalties are usually like timed penalties, it seems, where, okay, if you cut a turn, like if you cut a corner, um, you could have like a five-second penalty, or if you cut a corner and gain a place, you have to gain a place, or you have to give that place back up. So I haven't seen a lot of um, point penalties. I think you'd have to kind of do something pretty extreme for them to take points away after the race. But it has happened before. So now what do all these points go to? So throughout the whole season, which is the whole 23 races per year, each team and each driver is trying to rack up these points. So there's two awards at the end of the season. One is called the driver's uh, championship and one is called the constructor's championship. So the driver's championship is for each individual driver. So let's say, and okay, I'll give you an example. There's the Red Bull team and the Red Bull team has two drivers. So let's say we have Max and Checo are the two drivers for the Red Bull team. Now, if Max and Checo both place in, let's say they go first and second in the race, Max gets 25 points, Checo gets 18 points. Red Bull then that weekend just got 43 points. So they're ahead in the Constructors' Championship because that is the combined points that your team has throughout the year. Drivers is individual. So... Max and Checo will both have their own individual tallies, and then the highest driver in the field at the end of the season will win the driver's championship. So obviously the goal is to win both, but it has happened where, like, the Mercedes team wins the Constructors Championship, but a Red Bull driver wins the driver's championship. So it can get split. A lot of times it's the same. So... Those are, that's kind of like the main goal at the end of the 
this season. Now, let's talk a little bit about the cars. So there's three main components of the cars. One is the chassis, the other is the engine, and then we have the tires. All are very, very interesting. So the chassis is designed to be obviously as aerodynamic as possible. They want to reduce drag and make it very, very quick. These cars can go so fast. And we'll talk about that because it's more of an engine thing, but they can get up to like 235 miles an hour. Um, so the chassis of the car is just designed with these wings and diffusers, which are actually like, if you think of an airplane and the wings and stuff, they're designed obviously to produce lift for the plane. But with a Formula One car, the chassis are designed to produce a negative lift and actually press the car into the track. And because they're so such light cars, they need to produce negative lift to actually get the car kind of grounded into the track and allow the car to have traction around these turns because it's going so quickly. So I thought that was interesting that it was designed to produce negative lift. There's an average of five G's of downforce on average when they're driving at top speed. And again, it prevents cars from like skidding on turns or spiraling out or anything like that. Now the engines, um, all F1 cars have a 1.6 liter V6 turbocharged engine. There were some details about what that all exactly meant, like what 1.6 liter means, what V6 means. I think that just means there's six cylinders. But anyway, they all have like the same basic standard specs of being 1.6 liter V6 turbocharged engines. All cars must weigh 746 kilograms without the driver and the fuel. Um, I think they all, all must weigh at least 746. So you're trying to get the car to be light. So there's like a minimum weight requirement. And then uh, the revs or like RPMs are limited to 15,000 RPMs for the engines. Again, the cars can get up to about 235 uh, miles per hour, which is absolutely insane. A lot of these drivers like have to have really, really strong necks. You'll see a lot of them training their neck muscles and stuff because the G's going around the, um, the turns and stuff really puts a strain on their necks. So kind of interesting there. Now the tires are a whole other thing with Formula One and there's a lot of strategy that goes into the tires. So I, and honestly, like this is the most, um, what am I trying to say? This is the part that gets most confusing to me and the part that I need to actually watch more Formula One to kind of get more of a grasp on because like there's only a certain amount of tires you can use throughout a race weekend. They have different, um, they have different like softnesses or different materials essentially. So that you have like soft, medium and hard tires and they can be used at different times during the track and stuff. And there's all these rules about it. So instead of me trying to just do bullet points and stuff, I'm going to go through this article and just, we will learn kind of together so I don't misrepresent any of these tire rules. But, um, okay, let's talk about, and I'm going to link all these below, but this is from formula1.com. It's called, um, the beginner's guide to formula one tires, which is exactly what we need. So who supplies F1 teams with tires to go racing? 
There's an Italian manufacturer, Pirelli, and they have supplied the F1 team tires since 2011. They made a return to the sport after previous spells of involvement in the 50s, 80s, and 90s. So Pirelli was originally one of several companies to provide tires um, in the 1950s, but then, uh, you know, I don't know. There's been some times throughout Formula One history where there's multiple tire manufacturers competing against each other. But as of right now, Pirelli are the are F1's sole supplier. They have an agreement running through the end of 2024. Okay, the current specification of F1 tires um, are an all-new 18-inch tire for 2022. As And this was made as part of the sweeping changes to the technical regulations. Pirelli factored in more than 10,000 hours of indoor testing, 5,000 hours of simulation, and 70 virtually developed prototypes to create 30 different specifications, which were then tested by teams across more than 20,000 kilometers. So everyone basically gets the same tire, which is interesting because everything else is kind of competed. Like each team has different engine suppliers and chassis builders and designers some of them do it in-house some of them like go to competing teams and buy their engines but everyone has the same tires okay let's go to all right what about the compounds used at each track now this is interesting pirelli's range of 18 inch tires for 2023 comprises six slick compounds from softest to hardest which is c0 c1 c2 c3 c4 and c5 along with intermediates and full wets to account for inclement weather conditions. So a lot of times, like in Drive to Survive, if it starts raining, they'll say like, okay, you know, Hamilton is going in and pitting and he's changing to his wets, which is a special type of tire to drive in the wet track. And it gives you like a different level of traction and stuff like that. Okay, Pirelli picks three compounds to be used at each Grand Prix, taking into account track characteristics and climates. The hardest trio chosen for venues where the tires are generally subjected to greater demands. So Pirelli will supply, like and everyone's going to be using the same set of tires, so soft, medium, and hard is one of those C0 to C5 tire specs, and Pirelli will supply the ones needed for each track. On a standard weekend, drivers are given 13 sets of dry weather tires, four sets of intermediates, and three sets of full wets. An extra set of softs is reserved for those who reach Q3, which is a qualifying race, which we will go over. Um, all drivers must use at least two different slick compounds in the race, providing the track is dry. So from what I understand, soft tires have way more grip and are faster. So you would think that every team would just want to use like all softs so when they go into a pit stop like they would replace their soft tires with more soft tires because they're quicker but that is part of the strategy because you have to use at least two different types of compounds in each race so you have to kind of figure out when you want to use like your mediums versus your softs when everyone else is using their softs can you pass people you know, if you're on mediums, like, do you want to fall behind in the placing? So there's a lot of tire strategy that goes on in, um, in these races. It's crazy. Um, okay. 
there's some other tire rules, but I don't know if any of them are so important to go over right now. At RQF events, each driver may use no more than 11 sets of dry weather tires. Four sets of intermediate. Okay, interesting. Um, okay, then, and we'll go over this with the format of the race weekend, but for those qualifying races that I mentioned, there's like basically three qualifying races, Q1, Q2, and Q3. Those are all before the main event. You can only use hard tires in Q1, mediums in Q2, and soft in Q3. And then you can also use your intermediates or wet, depending on weather in those qualifying sessions. So, okay, those are the tire rules. Very interesting stuff with um, the drivers. But, okay, so here is, let's go over the, the t like timeline of events, basically, in a race weekend. And then everything else we'll save for next week. Because I want to talk about, like, the structure of a team, you know, the, the technical director, the traveling team, factory team, like, all the people involved in a team. And then we'll go over the history and stuff next week and current teams, drivers, all the drama going on in F1. But for right now, let's talk about a race weekend. So, um, let's see, where are the tracks that are used this year. Well, we'll go over which races and the locations, but here's what happens on a race weekend. It's kind of a long buildup, and Dax Shepard always talks about, like, how he loves the buildup of a race weekend. Like, he has multiple days of prep and watching things and stuff like that. So, the first thing that happens is at practice session or pre multiple practice sessions. This usually starts on Fridays, and it lasts until Saturday morning, so the drivers can go out and familiarize themselves with the track you know, fine-tune the cars. The engineers are essentially working on these cars all throughout the year. So if they realize that something's wrong, they can go in and tweak things and um, and fix things. And so if there's something that in particular that they want to adjust with this specific track, these practice sessions are really good for that. The drivers have a headset, you know, going back to their team and their engineers, and they can give feedback and say, like, okay, this is too bumpy, this is, you know... Whatever, whatever their problem is with the car, they can communicate that and fine-tune the cars. And then they can also try out some different tires and see how long they last because there's different surfaces for each track. So it's just a good practice stay session. And I believe that that is um, all televised. Now, usually on Saturday afternoons, the qualifying sessions will start. So there's three phases of this, like I mentioned, Q1, Q2, and Q3. So all 20 cars start in Q1 and they race like a shortened, a shortened race. Again, all 20 cars are in it, but the last five cars are eliminated. So places 16 through 20 in whatever order they came in, in 16 through 20, that's the order that those cars will start on the main race day. Uh, so their order is basically set. They do not compete in Q2 or Q3. So then Q2 comes, and the remaining 15 cars go into Q2. Again, the last five cars in the order that they came in, that determines their order of the main race. So by the end of Q2, you know the starting order of places 11 through 20. Again, Q1, you have to use hard tires. Q2, you use mediums. 
Then you get to Q3, and you have the 10 remaining cars racing in Q3, and this decides the grid position for the rest of the cars. So that is how you determine the places of who will start where in what place on the main race day. Now, that's called the grid position. So um, the grid is like the, the car order 1 through 20, and the grid position is extremely important when it comes to the race, because especially in races that are very narrow tracks, like Monaco, there's a race in Monaco where they race down the like the main streets of Monaco, and it is such a narrow track with these big concrete sidings and stuff that there's not a lot of passing happening in Monaco. So basically the order that you start the race in is a lot of times about the same order that you finish the race in. There's not a lot of passing on some of these. So these qualifying races sometimes are even more exciting than the than the main race because people are really pushing it to try to get their qualifying spot. So if you're in first place, that is called the pole position. And being in pole position is very, very important in a lot of races, but especially in these narrow races like Monaco. So a lot of times whoever is in pole, especially if it's a narrow track, um, will win the race. So everyone wants pole position. Okay, then the next day, usually Sunday, um, is the main race day. Now again, in three of these races, there is a sprint race between the qualifying sessions and race day. So after Q3, there will be a sprint race, and then the winner of the sprint race will get pole position. That is not common in a lot of the races, but in three, um, three of the race weekends, there's another sprint race in there. But main race day is usually on a Sunday. The cars line up on a grid. They do a warm-up lap. They line up. Uh, there's these five sets of lights that like all start lighting up one after the other. And then all five lights will shut off at once. And that means it's race time, lights out, the race starts. Um, then you go for many laps. I think, I think the races are like around two hours usually. Um, and that's why I'm not convinced I'll love live racing because it just seems pretty long, but I do, I am going to watch hopefully my first one this weekend because I think it's a, a race weekend here. Um, and I want to watch and see if I'm just like bored out of my mind because in, ra in Drive to Survive, they're cutting the races to all the exciting parts. Like every crash, obviously, like whenever they pass each other, like that's all you're seeing. The race in the show is about five minutes and not two hours. So I don't know if I'll actually like it or if I'll get, just get super bored, but we'll find out. Um, so yeah, so then again, the race day happens. The top 10 earn their points. It goes towards their driver and constructors championship totals, respectively. And that happens 23 times throughout the course of the year. Now, there's also some support races. So like on Sundays... They'll have F2 and F3 races a lot of times. And F2 and F3 are like the basically minor leagues of F1. So, you know, in the show, you see some of the like, or at least not, not some, because again, there's not very many drivers and not very many driver spots. But like the winner of the F2 
um, series and championship ended up getting pulled up into F1 racing. So those are like the undercards kind of of F1. Okay. They also say that um, part of the race weekend is a pit lane walk, which from what I understand can be part of your ticket. Like as a fan, you can get a ticket that's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of like a VIP ticket and you can go walk the pit lanes and see the teams like fine tuning their cars and the drivers getting ready for their race and stuff like that. It seems really, really cool. If I went to a Formula One race, I would definitely want to do that. Which, by the way, I looked up the prices of a Formula One race. Now, granted, this was the Vegas one. They raced on the Vegas Strip, and it's in like a month and a half. So I think the prices have been inflated since they came out. I'm sure it wasn't this price right when they went on sale. But the cheapest ticket as of a couple days ago to go to the F1 race and get a seat was $1,300 a person. So uh, maybe next year I... <laughs> I want to actually figure out the prices of them when, right when they go on sale and see if it's kind of reasonable and see if that would be fun. Because I think it really, it really would be. But you can also do that uh, pit lane walk. Okay, let's talk about pit stops during a race. Um, So basically pit stops are used to make repairs and change tires. So sometimes like if a car gets a little bit damaged on the front wing of it, but it's not enough to, you know, take the car fully out of commission. The pit crew can actually take off like the whole front wing of the car and put a new one on during a pit stop. Um, any minor repairs, but again, usually the pit stops are so quick that if it's going to take a long, long time to repair the t- they'll just re- retire the car and just say like, okay, we need to take a longer time to repair this. Um, but they change the tires. So again, they'll change from like soft tires to medium tires and medium tires to hard tires or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of coordination between like the engineers who are looking at the car and looking at the car's performance, you know, the, the chief guy, like the principal of the team, who's kind of making the call of like when to come into the pit stop, when to change the tires. Then they have to coordinate to the pit crew of like which tires they're actually putting on, all that happens before the driver even pulls up into the pits. So they'll have the tires ready. It'll be like a one second tire change and the drivers will be off again. It's very, very impressive. You're not allowed to refuel as a rule in Formula One. So all the fuel has to be there in the start of the race. Um, the pits are on the side of the racing lane. So there's like a pit lane and each team has a little area those are the area and the order of the pit crews is determined by the starting position on the grid that was decided during the qualifying races. So like the pole position will have the best pit stop area. Um, The pit crew can have up to 20 mechanics and the team will call a driver into a pit stop based off the state of their tires because there's so much Like, there's a whole team of people that are watching the analytics of the car as the driver is driving, and they'll say, okay, you know, you're not getting as much grip here. Like, we need to go change the tires. Your tires aren't doing as well. So the team will really tell the driver when to come in. It's not the driver making that call because they don't have access to all the data that the engineers have. So 
I think that's all we're going to do for this week. We have a lot to talk about next week. There's so much more left. I want to do a rundown of like all the terms of uh, Formula One. There's like all these slang terms that you can use and um, the history, the teams, the drama, all that. So we'll talk about that next week. But I hope you learned a lot. I hope you give Formula One a chance. I really hope that I like the races live. But we'll see. Maybe next week I'll come back and say, like, no, it was super boring. I just want to watch Try to Survive um, and track the races on my phone and track all the drama on Twitter or whatever. But um, who knows? So I'll give you an update next week. And I hope you come back next week for all the history and all the other stuff we're going to learn about Formula One. So that is all. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I will see you next week. Bye, everyone.